democracy Hello, I'm Lindsay Gorman, the Emerging Technologies Fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, and your host this week on Out of Order. Our guest is Maritja Schake, former member of the European Parliament and International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center. Welcome, Maritja. Hi, good to, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. In the months since you've joined Stanford, the policy conversation around technology in the context of geopolitical competition between democracy and authoritarianism has really heated up. We've realized more and more that the values that democracies stand for are both challenged and shaped by emerging technologies of our present and future. And there's been increasing interest from both the United States and Europe in coming into closer alignment on some of these priorities, while contesting the challenges we've seen from authoritarian states like China. Recent proposals from the European Commission have included an agenda for technology cooperation with the United States around supply chains, technology standards, export controls, common values, and industrial subsidies and investment screening proposals. And on the United States side, the new National Defense Authorization Act includes technology efforts around 5G and artificial intelligence and new authorities in cyberspace. The FTC is bringing an historic antitrust suit against Facebook, and to top it all off, the defense spending bill has been shrouded in controversy over Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, with President Trump threatening to veto the bill if Section 230 is not completely overhauled. In this conversation, we'd like to talk about a number of these issues, including going into some recent work that I've spent the last year on and we've published at the Alliance for Securing Democracy on how to build a future internet for democracies. But before we do that, I would love to get your thoughts and set some context on how technology has come to be such a mediator of values and of nation state power in today's political climate. Well, thank you for that great introduction. Uh, So much to talk about. But indeed, this has been the year where some of these percolating battles and competitions and competing visions of how to govern technology have really come to the surface. And I've been surprised that it's taken this long. You know, there has been this very... um, idealistic, romantic vision of an open global internet where perhaps the best of values would almost automatically materialize. And that was, you know, probably um, naive in a way uh, that it articulated hope more than reality for a long time. And uh, we've seen, and I think this is the most unfortunate um, thing to note, We've seen that authoritarian regimes have been much more aware of the high stakes for for their interests and their values that are being played out in this entire digital world, this digital ecosystem with its many articulations, and that countries like China, but also others, have been more proactive in extending their governance model into the digital world. And on the contrary, the democratic world, European nations, the United States, but also others have been very reluctant to extend the rules-based international order to the digital world where they had not only a governance advantage, but also a technological advantage in particular on the part of the United States for, let's say, the last decade. And right when the advantage in um, democracy globally, but also in their uh, technologies uh, has been reducing, you know, this discussion is now uh, being picked up. And, And I can only hope that it's not too late to manifest some of these institutions, mechanisms of creating fairness, respect for rights, accountability, to apply in the digital world in ways that, you know, as I as I mentioned, I think have been both uh, grabbed by 
authoritarian regimes, but also by privatized governance. You know, the, the power of private companies within democracies to set rules and standards, I think, is outsized and it needs to be reined in if we want a democratic governance model to to gain strength. Those are great points. And in some ways, as you highlight, the free and open internet model where we thought the best ideas would surface and the values underlying democracy would naturally win out, that vision has not really come to pass. And I think what you argue very eloquently in some of your writing is that governments and the public sector need to step up and play a role that democracies have thus far really outsourced to the private sector. There have been a number of proposals for how democracies can get on the same page on values and come up with smart regulation and collaboration around technology policy. We've seen proposals from Great Britain for a D10 group of democracies and from the incoming Biden administration on a summit for democracy and questions about whether the private sector and particularly the technology sector could play a role in these efforts. One aspect that has struck me is really the range of issues and the range of technology areas proposed. We have ideas from supply chain security to how to regulate big tech, whether that's antitrust or data privacy. We have areas where the United States really needs to get up to speed, particularly on the data side, and areas where the EU can come closer to the United States, such as on innovation. You've highlighted these tech alliance proposals as a potential way for democracies to come together. So I'm curious how we think about prioritizing what to tackle first of the panoply of important issues here. And are there some areas where the United States and the European Union are never really going to fully come together? What are the areas where we absolutely have to be on the same page? And what are the areas where it's okay to allow some differences within and among democracies themselves? Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. And the fact that you now have such a laundry list of issues that are urgent and that need to be addressed also shows how much of a backlog there is in addressing some of these challenges at all. Um, And what I think is helpful is to take as a starting point the democratic principles and the rule of law principles. Because if we start with each technology, it becomes very complicated very fast. Because, for example, when you talk about data, you know, data governance has implications for protecting the right to privacy, uh, the public interest, but also non-discrimination or antitrust. So when we just talk about data governance, all of those aspects come into play. Similarly, when we talk about cybersecurity, you know, it has trade implications, it has human rights implications, it has economic implications. So I believe that instead of saying, what to do about 5G, what to do about privacy, you know, what to do about uh, infrastructure. It's important to say politically, as democratic nations, we will put democracy first. We will have clarity on the fact that, for example, speech is free, short, uh, short of a few very clearly defined exemptions. Uh, similarly, we believe that um, uh, that we should have uh, a free and, and open uh, debate, but that even if speech is not illegal, we've identified harms to public health, to public safety, uh, possibly um, uh, discriminatory effects, which we do not allow. And this is what our definitions look like. So basically to get clarity on on what those principles look like and then give, uh, I would say, greater mandates, capabilities, resources to regulators. And these regulators may be domestic. For example, if we look at the EU model, you have EU-wide antitrust rules, but domestic regulators play a role in in looking at, you know, whether a case has merits, whether a company or organization is violating antitrust principles. 
and then what the remedy should be. Uh, similarly, there's, you know, media watchdog, data protection regulators in a number of our societies. And so the question is, what is the level, the aggregation level at which you can come to consensus? Let's imagine that this would be a coalition of democratic nations that have clarity on a number of democratic principles. Then surely they can implement in their own jurisdictions, in their own political systems. But starting with the democratic principles, I think is a more viable way than trying to address each and every specific technology, even as there may have to be specific rules, for example, when it comes to access to information, transparency, I think AI presents a new set of challenges. Uh, algorithmic applications do, and that is something that could be put on the table. Now you asked where um, the US and the EU might find each other and where there might be uh, differences remaining. Um, I would say that consensus can be found, uh, one, if there's willingness, and I truly hope there is, because, you know, even under the Obama administration, there was such um, battles over, for example, how to consider privacy or, you know, how to deal with some of these issues. And it hasn't been easy under uh, President Trump, certainly. So I think there's a lot of hope now that the transatlantic relation can be revitalized with a focus on some of these relatively new areas like governance in the digital world. But uh, I think that there's strengths on each side. Let me frame this positively. I think there's strength in the United States in appreciating the national security stakes around technology. Um, I think there's been more of a recognition of the threat coming from China as an alternative governance model. Um, in Europe, I think there is great strength in building on a foundation of rights and freedom protection. Uh, and so if both could learn from each other, so Europeans look a bit more realistically at the national security concerns, Americans look with more ambition to the rights and freedoms agenda, then there are shared issues like antitrust, which frankly I think are approached in very, very similar ways. Um, issues like uh, infrastructure and, and trusted supply chains, I think are a shared interest that can be built on and build out. So I do see contours of a landing zone. Uh, I hope that in the space of war and peace, there can be clarity on what is acceptable behavior, what is unacceptable behavior, and where we need new laws, for example, of responsible behavior in peacetime, new accountability mechanisms for uh, when there are cyber attacks from both state and non-state actors, clarity on the responsibility of the private sector in all these contexts. So it's going to be a very ambitious agenda. But given that technology is now a layer of everything in our societies and economies, there's no avoiding of some of these topics, right? You can't really say, oh, we're going to do antitrust, but the rest we're going to leave because, you know, it, it touches everything and the urgency is extraordinary. So I really hope that the, the mantle will be picked up and that we will see more democratic leadership where it's been so absent for too long. Absolutely. And I think imbuing that values and freedom agenda sort of in the national security conversation will be central to to succeeding in, in a world where, as you point out, hard power is no longer the defining facet of nation state influence. And in fact, technology and our values and rights and governance of those technologies are increasingly becoming part of nation-state influence and power. So in fact, having a, a national security agenda that really doubles down on what's at stake in geopolitical competition, which is our values, our openness, transparency, freedom of speech, freedom of access to information, really goes to the heart 
of this of this global competition. Uh, I wanted to pick up on a point of of China as an alternative governance model and ask you, we've seen not only is China an alternative governance model by default or de facto, but in fact, China has taken on a, an increasingly assertive role in shaping international standards and international technology governance. We see this in its recent data framework that that mirrors some aspects of the EU's own landmark general data protection regulation. We see this in an AI for good initiative that China is promoting through the International Telecommunications Union, one of the technical standard setting organizations that is actually the world's oldest UN agency. And what I'm wondering here is how much are these good faith efforts from China to, to shape technology in a way that's supportive of what, you know, it would put forward as common values and shared values, particularly with Europe, perhaps in the absence of of United States legislation, particularly on the data protection side. Um, and but Or how much is this kind of a propaganda tool that is actually papering over some pretty significant differences in how we think about how surveillance technology are, are used, how AI systems should be used, what the role of the state should be in accessing personal information? Right. So in principle, I believe that the most helpful approach for open societies, open markets, is to articulate what an enabling environment looks like. Uh, And that's, you know, opposed to what we've seen in the sort of trade war standoff between President Trump and uh, and the Chinese um, state when it came to um, when it came to, for example, TikTok and access to markets. You know, that's that's a race to the bottom. So um, it, it is an approach of trust you know, trust and, and verify, making sure that you, you don't have to rely on what the other party says, but that you have clarity on what is required, which is a very normal approach, frankly. You know, if you look at um, uh, pro- product rules, whether it's safety standards for kids' toys or for food food and beverage or agricultural products or cars and industrial products, chemicals, pharmaceutical products, aviation... There's hardly any sector where there's not clarity on we only trust that this is okay to consume, to access, to use when these and these criteria are met. The US does that, Europe does it, China does it, everybody does it in a slightly different way, but that's how it goes. And the strange thing is that very little of such articulation of standards have been um, put in place for when it comes to regulating technology. And with supply chains and questions about the trust in them or network technology and questions about, you know, what could be done to subvert subvert the technology, this is becoming more and more urgent. So what I'm hoping is, is that there can be um, a verifiable set of standards, which pulls this out of the realm of you know, the U.S. versus China or uh, China versus the U.S. or whatnot, because it, it's just... It's just a um, negative starting point. And that I also think risks losing sight of other factors that may be problematic, not just limited to China or the U.S. In any case, um, China is stepping up its regulatory efforts. And even if the articulation of principles may sound similar, so they also have AI ethics when uh, if you read them on paper, they sound like they could be, you know, Microsoft's ethics standards or uh, the U.S.'s ethics standards. It all sounds very accessible. 
But the context of whether you have, for example, a rule of law based system with checks and balances, with an independent judiciary, with a democratically accountable government matters fundamentally for how any articulation of principle or data protection law, as you referenced, play out in practice. And we can clearly see how the rights protection of individuals is fundamentally different in a country like China. In fact, there's no real appetite to talk about universal human rights. Um, I, I sometimes miss that appetite in the United States too. But the point is, the context within which these principles are articulated and these laws are adopted obviously matters. And that's why I think we should think more critically about how technologies are used globally. And here too, the democratic countries of this world have really dropped the ball. So many surveillance and repression technologies are made within democratic societies with devastating impact on human rights in third countries, but also at home. I mean, the notion that there's so much surveillance and so much data gathering happening is not a strength, but it can be turned into a weakness, I think is clearly seen by the 2016 efforts to manipulate the elections. But more broadly, um, it is it is clear that connectivity also brings huge vulnerability and that we have to be very clear about how uh, we want to protect democracy, we want to protect people's rights, and we, we cannot simply put blind trust in the in the liberalizing effect of the technology itself. One thing you touched on that is really important is articulating sort of these general principles and almost vendor neutral or country neutral ideas that can drive technology governance and, and perhaps even regulation. And I think this is something we saw to great effect in the 5G context, particularly in Europe, as the EU built out its toolbox for risk assessment on critical infrastructure and, and 5G, which actually was born out of a multilateral conference based in Prague, the Prague Security Conference, that did just that to lay out these vendor-neutral risk principles that many of which were driven by the governance system uh, in which these technologies are developed. And I, and I would hope that we could extend that spirit sort of to the other technology arenas. Um, to, so to round out this discussion of, of technology influence and governance and power, I'd like to describe and get your reaction to what I think is the future of technological influence, this concept of the future internet stack. And at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, we recently published a major report, which we'll link to in the show notes, finding that China in particular is marrying the infrastructure, the application and the governance layers of the future internet to build out and shape a world that advances China's own conceptions and values. And in particular, we, we found some examples where, where Huawei was not only acting on 5G infrastructure, where the conversation has focused mostly, but was actually building out the application layer, selling things like predictive policing systems in, around in the developing world. There was one case in particular in Brazil where a local official was touting the use of Huawei's predictive policing technology to make preventative arrests and anticipate crime and stop the crime before it happens. And furthermore, these application technologies are being bolstered by the standards development work at places like the ITU, at places like the 3GPP, where China has taken a really top-down approach to influencing and contributing to these standards that at the same time advance its own technology and advance a value system that 
causes questions for democracies. And so I think the novel contribution of this research has been to tie these three layers together, demonstrate how this leadership influences technological competitiveness and values, and also to craft specific policy recommendations for democracies to undertake together. Things like developing a trusted internet or trusted cyber standard, including for the developing world to use as input into membership, into, into bodies like the OECD, uh, building joint centers of excellence for the future internet, R&D and standards work, and some recommendations on the U.S. and the EU side, namely constructing a data privacy and data protection framework in the U.S. and perhaps in the EU, thinking about a commission on the theft of intellectual property. Um, you've written a lot about these topics, and so I want to ask you and get your reaction on how you see the future of the internet fitting into this this global contents, particularly as we extend questions of the internet from infrastructure to application to governance. Right. So I do agree that we need to understand the digital world as an ecosystem. And um, the the internet, as people perceive it, is only one layer, usually um, over-the-top services that we can all access. But indeed, underneath that, there there's infrastructure uh, of all kinds. And also there's products that create their own risks and standards and, uh, and applications, especially as the Internet of Things makes, makes uh, the uh, omnipresence of connectivity even, even vaster and creates new you know, surfaces for possible attack, uh, for possible risk uh, when it fails or when it's not upgraded and leads to all kinds of new questions about liability and regulation. So I think it is it is a smart way to look at this whole question of um, standard setting and values integration into technology as an ecosystem, where indeed, um, even if there is not explicit regulation coming from governments, for example, there can be standard setting in a way that sets norms all the same, uh, norms through the technology itself, right? Because it's built in. For example, if you... Uh, if you export surveillance systems uh, or infrastructure, network infrastructure to third countries that allows for uh, mass surveillance, you know, in the technology, there is uh, a an, an sort of possibility to, to use that has, has baked in uh, a sort of model uh, that could be, could be abused without the right um, uh, protections in place. And often, actually, exports happen also from Europe, also from the United States, into contexts where no questions are asked about whether people's rights are protected. So, um, you know, with, for example, the EU being the biggest development donor in the world and with having a lot of legacy companies in the telecom sector, you really have to wonder why has there not been a sort of um, connection made between investing in IT infrastructure and ensuring that people's rights like privacy and data protection rights were uh, in place. In a number of countries, infrastructure was rolled out while zero rights were protected. And still, I think, you know, as we bicker on between the US and the EU about whether data protection is, is properly secured now or should be better, we shouldn't forget that in a lot of countries, people have no protection of their data. People have no protection of their privacy. And, and yet the most sophisticated systems are, are rolled out uh, in their lives. And, and it really creates all kinds of huge implications for security, uh, human rights, and, and standards that, you know, may have different implications uh, later on. Anyway, um, yes, <laughs> uh, I think it shows the urgency of having a democratic vision on this 
digital ecosystem, uh, from the infrastructure to the application and the regulation and the way they interact with each other. And so it's a good reminder not to just focus on the regulatory side, but to focus on what the private sector is doing in setting standards, uh, how they must adhere to democratic principles and how that can be achieved. And then similarly, how other uh, nation states are uh, not waiting for the democratic world to get its act together and to have a more integrated vision that includes security aspects, economic aspects, rights aspects, which I think in technology are increasingly hard to uh, dissect. There is so much integrated that the vision and the model has to be integrated as well. You've written recently that this disparity between the public and private sectors is spiraling out of control. And I think, as you you just highlighted, many of these questions are really playing out, in fact, on private sector battlefields. One of the one of the things I think is so interesting about the work you've done is really take take your experience in in Brussels and in the European Parliament and port it into Silicon Valley and and bring the lessons from from Europe to Silicon Valley and perhaps the lessons from Silicon Valley to Europe and I think that type of coordination is is so important. So I would like to close by asking you what can Americans learn from the EU on how we deal with the private sector, how we do deal with values and and what would you say for the EU and Europeans to learn from from the US in, in how we think about technology and innovation? Well, so I think for a long time, Europeans have felt that the need to protect people's privacy actually did not have so much to do with the tech sector initially, but much more with protecting people from the abuse of power by their own governments. And it was perceived in the United States as a tool to uh, target Silicon Valley, maybe out of jealousy or maybe out of misunderstanding of the technology. And uh, I feel like the last year, in the most unfortunate way, has brought some of those lessons home to Americans. That if you don't actively protect rights, if you don't actively safeguard the rule of law, if you do not defend democracy, you cannot take for granted that it will continue to exist. And I think Europeans are looking to the US and perhaps the whole world uh, with great concern at how quickly a self-declared superpower uh, is eroding when it comes to democratic standards and when it comes to the fragility of democracy, when it comes to the depolarization that we've seen, the attacks on the press that we've seen, the ability of both foreign and domestic actors to very quickly uh, destabilize uh, the, the fabric of society. Uh, the question of whether there can be any common ground. Also in in making all the policies that we've discussed today and and moving ahead with this governance uh, question, how it's even going to be possible in the current polarized uh, environment, the willingness of people to use violence against each other. I mean, these are very, very serious problems. And we cannot deny that there's both a technological and an information component to this. And I think for Europeans, the idea that information is power and the question of how you can create an enabling environment for defending democracy is, is more recent in people's minds. My hope is, and this is, this is only in search of a silver lining, my hope is that the events of the last year can lead to more awareness in the United States that defending and safeguarding of rule of law and dem- democratic principles is necessary, that it won't be automatic, and that the technology and the sector of big tech companies will not take care of it. They, they just won't. Whether they 
want to or not, it's not going to be enough. <laughs> and whether they take responsibility or not, there have to be benchmarks in place. And so my hope is that this awareness of the general pressure that democratic rights are under domestically and internationally can lead to in a revolutionary joining of forces because the stakes are so high. And, um, you know, I, I can only hope that this year we'll see the start of that change and that the many painful lessons learned are not in vain and that it will lead to quick stepping up uh, of, of democratic nations in a coalition to govern the digital world because the digital world is not an alien planet far away from us. It is actually integrated in all parts of our lives and it's important that democracy governs technology and technology does not govern democracy. An important reminder that democracy is not a spectator sport. Marit Jashaka, thank you so much for joining us today and for the continuing work that you're doing. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.